I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, I'd like to begin reading for us in verse 1 down to verse 25. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, what does spirit-led worship look like? If you were to survey many churches in America today, I think these are some of the things, some of the descriptions you would get for spirit-led worship. Spontaneous, unscripted, informal, casual, emotionally driven. And if you were to ask the classic Pentecostal view, what does spirit-inspired worship look like, they would say it must also entail what they call speaking in tongues as a sign of spirit baptism. And this, this manifestation of the spirit, they claim, is, uh, is when people speak in inarticulate, uh, uh, un, uh, understandable language. And that is claimed to be the sign that the Spirit is really among them. And of course, there's all sorts of other uh, things that you, could, uh, that you may have heard or read about or even experienced yourself, such as laughing or barking or being slain in the Spirit or a whole host of other things that are attributed to Spirit-led worship. Now, I don't want to judge people's experience, uh, or I don't want to claim that they hadn't experienced those things, or perhaps you've experienced that yourself, but all of our experience needs to be judged by God's word. And as we look in our uh, passage today, as we consider what the Apostle Paul writes about spirit-inspired worship in 1 Corinthians 14, he reasons that since God is not a God of confusion, but of peace... All things should be done decently and in order. And the chief of the things that needs to be done in worship is the clear communication of the word of God in language that is understandable to all for the church's instruction, exhortation, and encouragement. And so as we consider the passage today, keep in mind that Paul has been building upon this topic of spiritual gifts going all the way back to chapter 12, where he described that the Holy Spirit gives a diversity of gifts to each and every individual believer, which they are to use for the common good. Since not all Christians have all the same gifts, it's not a competition, but these gifts are given not to promote the individual, but to build up the church. Everything must be done out of love towards the goal of edification. And every member is indispensable for a fully functioning functioning church, but not all gifts are created equal. That's the point that Paul's been driving home, and especially in our passage today, how he shows how one gift is better than another gift for the building up and edification of the church. And so now in chapter 14, Paul gets very practical as he applies the, the main idea that everything should be done out of love for edification. And as he looks at two gifts in particular, namely tongues and prophecy, and he shows how one is better than the other for the building up of the church. And so on the heels of the chapter that we considered last week, chapter 13, the chapter on love, showing how love is the greatest of all the gifts, the Apostle Paul 
transitions into this practical application in verse 1 where he says you need to pursue love. Follow after it in the same way that a hunter pursues its prey. We ought to pursue the gift of love. As a reminder, as we saw last, last week, no matter how gifted a person may be, if they are not acting out of love, they are nothing. And so Paul says pursue love, pursue and desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. You see, in their prayerful pursuit of the spiritual gifts, Paul places a premium on prophecy. And the reason and, and perhaps the reason why Paul feels like he needs to tell them to pursue prophecy is because they weren't pursuing prophecy. Rather, they were probably putting more value on the gift of tongues. To them, it, it, it was a showy gift. It was a gift where they could stand up and, everyone, and be in the limelight and everyone would look at them and be impressed. And yet Paul says, no, you need to place a premium on prophecy. Well, why? Why is prophecy superior to tongues? Well, he says in verse 2, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks to God and not to man. Now, the important thing to note here is that this word translated tongue is a wooden literal translation. That's literally what it is in the Greek. And yet a better translation would be not the gift of tongues, but the gift of languages. You see that word tongue is a euphemism for a language. And what's being described here in scripture is, is not just gibberish, but it is real spoken languages that have a real meaning. And yet the meaning of the language is unknown to the speaker. Therein lies the gift. It's the ability to speak a language that you don't know. And so rather than uh, uh, trying to interpret Scripture with our present-day experience, what, what the, the, the uh, contemporary uh, claims of tongue speaking or the phenomena of tongues that we see today, what we should do is understand this, this gift, not in what we've seen in the last 100 years in our country, but rather we ought to understand this gift with what Scripture says and how it's plainly described in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon those in the upper room and they begin speaking in tongues, we read that the men assembled from all around the world were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these speaking, who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And so it's very plain, very clearly described that the gift of tongues is the gift to be able to speak foreign languages unknown to the speaker, but known to others. And so what does that mean when Paul says that he speaks to God and not to man? Well, uh, left untranslated, the gift of tongues are unintelligible since even the speaker doesn't know what he or she is saying. It's only known by God. And so that's why Paul says they speak to God and not to man. But on the other hand, Paul now contrasts and shows why prophecy is better in the context of public worship because you're not speaking just to God, but you are speaking to people in language that they can understand. And, and if you look there, as he describes what prophecy is, he says in verse 3 that he speaks to people for their upbuilding, that's the same word, edification, encouragement, in consolation. You see, when we, come, when we hear that word prophecy, we typically think of 
foretelling the future. You think of how some of the Old Testament prophets predicted uh, certain events that would come to pass. Or even in the New Testament, we see men such as Agabus, who predicts that a famine would come upon the world, or that Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem. Well, that was one of the functions of prophecy. But the major function of prophecy is not foretelling, but forthtelling. That is, proclaiming God's word to his people and applying it to their lives for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, for their edification, for their consolation. And so you might ask, well, what does that look like? What would that look like in the first century context? I think a perfect example of New Testament prophecy, this idea of speaking to others, speaking God's word for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation, would be the entire book of Hebrews. The author to the book of Hebrews actually describes his book as an exhortation. That's the same word that's translated encouragement here. And when you look at the book of Hebrews, it's actually a a lengthy sermon. Actually, it's not that lengthy. If you read it, it take about 35 minutes. It's It's an exposition primarily on Psalm 110. And so the book of Hebrews would be a perfect example of spirit-inspired prophecy that was uh, written or uh, eventually proclaimed to the people of God for their, for their information, edification, and exhortation. That's what Paul is saying is, holds the, the premium in public worship. And so prophecy is just another term for pastoral-inspired, but pastoral preaching. And we need to understand that the gift of prophecy was vitally necessary during the formative years of the church during the time in which the New Testament was written. Consider the fact that if 1 Corinthians was written in about AD 55 and the New Testament wasn't completed until the 90s, you have a, a you know, 50 to 60 year period where the church is functioning without a fully written New Testament. And imagine those first few decades after Christ ascended. You have no New Testament at all. Imagine we come together as Christians, as New Covenant believers, and yet we only have the Old Testament to go off of. That's why you need the prophets. That's why you need the apostles and then the prophets. But after the apostles and the prophets served their function and the New Testament was written and the canon was closed, we see now the gifts of preaching and teaching serving in the same function, taking the once and for all delivered word of God and then proclaiming it to the people of God. That's why Paul, in chapter 12, lists those gifts, first the apostles, then the prophets, then the teachers, in order, in successive order, because that's the order of operations in which Christ builds his church. He lays the foundation and he builds on top of that. And that's why Paul says prophecy should take the primary place in New Testament worship. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself. It's important to keep in mind that Paul doesn't deny the spiritual benefit that one might derive from speaking in tongues. He even says, I'm thankful that I speak in tongues. He doesn't forbid it outright, even in the context of public worship. But in light, of all of that, in light of all that has been said, especially by the fact that we need to be motivated by love for the purpose of building up others, we need to pursue prophecy because it seeks to build up the church and not just ourselves. After all, love doesn't seek its own, but the benefit of others. 
That's why he says in verse 5 that the one who prophesies is greater. Of course, he's not speaking about the person here. We're all equal in Christ, but he's talking about the gift. The function of prophecy is better. Why? Well, because it builds up the church. Now, it's important to keep in mind, he doesn't forbid speaking in tongues outright, but he has one major caveat that we read in verse 5. That is, tongues must, if they're going to be spoken in church, the gift of languages, if it's going to be spoken and used, it must be interpreted. They may be spoken, but they must be interpreted. If If you skip ahead to verse 27 and 28, he describes what that might look like. He says, if any speak in a tongue... Let there be one, let there only be two, or at the most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there was no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. You see, once tongues are interpreted and everyone else is able to understand what is being said, then they become functionally equivalent to prophecy. But Paul's main logic here is hey, eliminate the middleman. Just just pray that you might prophesy rather than speaking in tongues and then praying that someone must interpret those tongues. That's why prophecy is greater. And he wants to illustrate this by using different situations in life. He says, imagine that I would come to you, which Paul was planning to do. He was planning a trip to Corinth. He says, imagine if I come to you and all I do is speak in foreign languages to you. How would that be beneficial? If you didn't understand a single word that I said, if I didn't bring to you a revelation, a knowledge, prophecy, or teaching. You see, all of those things that Paul lists there, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching, they're all kind of fall under the category of the ministry of the word. It's all inspired by God. It's all profitable for our edification. It is living and active. But if you don't understand a word that is being said, Paul says it is worth nothing. He uses the example of instruments, these lifeless instruments, making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the flute or harp or bugle are not played properly, we will not recognize the music or hear the right call. I won't single out any of my sons by name, but one of my sons was assigned to play a trumpet in school. And this was when Jacob was a baby, and he would practice his trumpet, and Jacob would scream his head off because he hated it. (laughs) It, Unless you are a trained musician, unless you're playing that instrument properly, it's not going to make a beautiful, intelligible sound that we can appreciate, but rather it will be grating on the ears. Kind of like the noisy gong or clanging cymbal. It's Paul's point here when he says, so it is with you. How much more ought we to use intelligible speech when communicating God's word? Otherwise, we're just speaking into the air. It's pointless. Well, Paul then goes from, uh, uh, from lifeless instruments to interpersonal communication in verses 10 through 11 as he talks about the fact that communication is a two-way street. It takes two people to communicate. One person needs to speak clearly and the other person needs to understand what is being said. It's so funny how even when we know the same language, communication is difficult, but how much more difficult is that when you don't know what the other language 
Those of us who have been in foreign countries or in contexts where everyone else is speaking a different language, you feel isolated. It's, it's alienating. You, you don't understand what they're saying. And, you know, they start laughing and you think, are they laughing at me? You feel ostracized. Well, that's, ba- that's Paul's basic point. If you don't know the other person's language and they don't know your language, then, they're, then you're a foreigner to them and, you, and, and vice versa. And so uh, he, he highlights here the fact that if you don't know the language, it's alienating, it's ostracizing. You're driving people away rather than bringing them in. So he says, since you are very eager to manifest the Spirit, if you want to see what Spirit-led worship is like, he says, put that enthusiasm to good use and strive to build up the church. You need to be wanting not to promote yourself, but rather to build up your neighbor. And so he says in verse 13 that if anyone speaks in a tongue, he should pray that he interpret. This, again, would make what is spoken intelligible and make it functionally equivalent to prophecy so that others could say, oh, that's what you said, and give their amen to it. But, as he'll say later, if there's no one to interpret The person must remain silent in the church. He says in uh, in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, so far, the, the word spirit has been translated with a capital S because Paul has been referring to the Holy Spirit. But here in verses 14 and 15, he's he's not referring to the Holy Spirit, but he's referring to his personal spirit, his inner being which is distinct from the mind. And so he distinguishes between the spirit, which is this inner being, and the mind, which uh, processes his thought. And he says, I will pray in my spirit, or if I speak in a tongue, my, and, and if you don't know what you're saying, you're praying in the spirit, but your mind is unfruitful. You're not able to benefit from what is being said because you don't know what is being said. And so what's the solution? Well, that's in verse 15. We ought to pray with our spirit, but with our mind also. We ought to sing with our spirit, but we ought to sing with our mind also. So often in churches today, we we either put so much of an emphasis upon emotional experience at the expense of intellectual, uh, uh, having a church that is intellectually stimulating. And so it's emotion over intellect, and they're pitted against each other. But the Apostle Paul says, no, that is a false dichotomy. We don't have to choose between loving God with all of our heart and loving God with all of our mind. It's both and. We ought to pray with our spirit, but pray with our mind also. We ought to sing with our spirit, but sing with our mind also. We can and should do both. And he says, so if anyone comes in, and you're praying in tongues, how can anyone give their amen, that is their verbal assent, to what is being prayed if they don't understand the words? Paul says, you may be giving thanks well enough. You, as a matter of fact, to be saying the best prayer of thanksgiving ever uttered by man. And yet, if no one can understand what you're saying, you're speaking into the air and the other person is not being edified. And so Paul wants them to speak. If they're going to engage in speaking in tongues, using this gifts, they need to be doing it in a better way. 
I think that's the idea in verse 18 when he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Another way to translate that is better than all of you. So it's not necessarily a question of, of quantity. It's a question of quality. We need to be using this gift for the good of others. And Paul, so then Paul, again, puts the emphasis on, on prophecy when he says, but I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, some of you may appreciate a five-word sermon. I think I've, I think I've gotten past that. But Paul's point here, and of course he's engaging in hyperbole. Of course, Paul's sermons were more than five words. But the point here is even that would be better than 10,000 words in a foreign tongue because you wouldn't understand a single one of them. And so he reasons with his audience. He wants, his, he wants the Corinthians uh, to understand what they're doing when they're placing such an unhealthy emphasis upon the gift of tongues at the expense of the gift of prophecy when he says, do not be children in your thinking, implying that they were acting in a childish manner. He's already rebuked them for being childish because they had divisions among them. And so here he says, once again, don't be immature. Now, he wants them to maintain their innocence with regard to evil, but they were to think and act in a mature manner. And they were to do so with a proper appreciation of what the gift of tongues actually points to. And he does that by citing a passage from the Old Testament. He says in verse 21, in the law, now Paul actually goes on to quote from the prophet Isaiah, which isn't strictly speaking part of the, the law, the first five books of the Bible, but the law here is considered as a whole from the whole Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, where he says, By a people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. You see, for the most part, the prophet Isaiah's prophecies fell on deaf ears. He knew that all the way back at his calling in chapter 6. He says, go on speaking, but they will not hear. And that's because ultimately Isaiah's audience was for the most part made of unbelieving Israelites. As a result of their unbelief, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the day in which God would send his judgment. And part of that judgment would be that he would speak to them in strange tongues with foreign lips. And that ultimately was fulfilled in the form of the Assyrians. When the Assyrians came and conquered the northern tribes of Israel and carried them away as captives, God, it was as if God was speaking to them through these foreigners. And as they were unable to understand the language of the Assyrians, they realized that the sign of God's judgment had come upon them. And so that's what I think Paul's getting at in verse 22 when he says tongues are a sign not for believers, but they're a sign for unbelievers. You see, just as the captors, the Assyrian captors speaking a foreign language to the unbelieving Israelites was a sign of their judgment, so also tongues serve to confirm unbelievers and impenitent in their unbelief. 
As part of God's redemptive history, God sent the sign of tongues to serve as a sign of judgment for unbelieving Israel to further alienate and harden them so that the Gentiles might be brought in. And we see this even on the day of Pentecost. Who were the ones who were benefiting from the tongue speaking? Well, it was the men from all around the world. Those who spoke in different dialects, signifying that the gospel was now going out to all nations. But who didn't benefit from the gift of tongues? Well, those who didn't understand. And so what did they do? They mocked. And they said, these men are filled with new wine. You see, in the same way that, uh, much like those who accused the apostles of being drunk, tongues on their own, left untranslated, do not create faith in the hearts of the listeners, but rather drives them away. That's the idea that Paul says, if an unbeliever or an outsider comes into your church and you're all speaking in tongues, what are they going to think? They're going to think you're out of your mind. They're going to be driven away and alienated from the church. And that will be a sign of judgment to them as they are driven and not uh, drawn closer by the word of God. Paul's point is that's not what the church is called to do. We're not called to repel people. We're not called to act crazy and drive them away thinking that we're out, that, that letting them think that we're out of our mind. No, we're called to speak the truth in a clear way. And that's so that's why Paul uh, uh, switches. He says, if on the other hand, if all prophesy. Now, the point being here is not that every single person prophesies. As I'll go on to say, let only two or three prophesy. I think the idea here is if all an unbeliever or an outsider hears when they come into worship, if all they hear is prophecy, what will happen? Well, the word of God will be proclaimed clearly in an intelligible language. Both the law and the gospel will be proclaimed and clearly spoken so that the Holy Spirit can use that to convict the unbeliever's heart and create faith in their heart so that they might embrace the promises of the gospel. Paul describes that process when he says he is convicted by all. He's called to account. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. I don't think Paul's speaking about uh, members of the church using personal words of knowledge as if they're able to read this individual's mind. No, I think Paul's speaking about the general operation of the Holy Spirit, how how he uses both the law and the gospel to convict people of sin. As, As Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world's sin and of righteousness and of judgment but also the preach, he, how he uses the preaching of the gospel to create faith in their hearts. And that's ultimately what will happen if you place an emphasis upon the pastoral preaching of the word. Falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Notice the stark contrast of the two judgments. If everyone speaks in tongues, the person will think you're crazy. If everyone prophesies, the person will fall on his face and say, God is really here. And that's what I think Paul means when he says prophecy is a sign for believers. The preaching of the word is a sign that God is really in our midst. The plain and simple, this plain and simple proclamation of Christ and him crucified is a demonstration of the spirit and of power. 
That's what Paul's already said back in chapter 2 when he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So likewise, let us not place a heavy stock or emphasis upon signs and wonders thinking that somehow that's what the Holy Spirit does in the church, but rather let us place our faith in Christ and him crucified, knowing that as that message is proclaimed, even in a simple, plain and simple yet clear manner, the Holy Spirit uses that to create faith in our hearts and to conform us more and more into the image of his son. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you continue to rule and reign us by your word and your spirit. And we thank you for the fact that, it, that your word is the very word of God. That as it is proclaimed, the spirit is at work in our midst. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to transform us by your word and that you would set us free by your truth. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen.